Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran, and along with Podrigo Toma, we started 10 by 9 in the Black Box in Belfast in September 2011, and we're still there every month. 10 by 9 is a live event where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. There are four stories on this podcast, two from Belfast and two from our friends in Adelaide, when the theme was pets. Let's start here in Belfast though, and it was August 25th. The theme was Getaway, and here's first-timer John Mooney. The key turned beautifully in the lock. I carefully put the key in my pocket. Shannon Hotel College was closed for another day. Yes! Imagine this. At University College, I'm standing in a uniform. Like my two friends. University and I'm in a uniform. The blazer was identical to a pilot's outfit. A black jacket with golden wings emblazoned into the top pocket. No stripes, mind you. We weren't captains. Though I was the head boy of this college. Yes, I needed stripes, all right. Maybe not of the captain's kind. I had a thing going on with my French teacher. She taught us beginner's French. I was 20 years old from Belfast. And she was about 55, long black hair, a beautiful personality, and a warm smile. Yes, wee, wee, wee. Oh, la, la. (laughs) No, 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 not like that. The thing was giving her a lift home provided she finished class 20 minutes early. (laughs) This way we could get to Shannon Town Centre before the shops closed at 6 o'clock. Along with the French teacher, two others got a lift, Rusty and Paul. Rusty was a smiler, red hair, very funny, and charmed everyone he met. He knew how to make all the right moves, even charmed me into getting a free lift home. You know the kind of person that's doing you the favour by taking a lift home? (laughs) Paul, on the other hand, was a big strapping lad with a silly grin, a person who just oozed mischief of the nice kind. You sure were to have fun when Paul was around. Together, the four of us walked to the car park. I was driving a borrowed BMW, and now I thought I was the bee's knees. A big silver car with heavy doors and a dashboard that resembled a cockpit. Before everyone got into the car, Paul turned the jet of the windscreen washer to the left. That was our little trademark. Life could not have been better. Our five-mile getaway journey from Shannon Airport should take us all of ten minutes. Money paid for the car park. The barrier lifts. We took off to the tuna batter to the hell and put the pedal to the metal. The getaway was on. There he is, said Paul. I pulled up close to one of our friends on a bicycle and pressed the windscreen washer button. A water jet went whoosh, soaking our friend in a bike. Bullseye, says Paul. Within another 30 seconds, 
the guard was stopping us with quick reactions of a cat and the screech of the brakes. I stopped, and so did the car. Several yards from the guard, you can't go further, he said. You must turn back. Limbic taxis drivers have blocked the road in protest of not being able to pick up paying passengers from the airport without a special license. You won't get home for several hours. Rusty, the charmer, sat in the front seat. Yes, he charmed his way into that too. Slowly buzzed the window down. He charmed the guard into divulging an unofficial way out of the airport near the control tower. The guard looked stunned as he'd been charmed into giving the secret away. He didn't even react to the speed. We reversed the car and flew back down the road. As we drove the new route, we were being waved at by the security staff. From the back of the car, Paul said, he's waving us to the right. Chancer. He was telling us to go the other way. We are now close to the main runway of Shannon Airport. <laughs> the gates are open. The barrier is up. We're one of the lucky few, we thought. We must go down the runway and then out a gate to home. Amazing! As I kept driving, the security looked at me and me at him and him at me and me at him. The security man must have thought we were pilots because of our uniform and therefore let us pass. Now, let me ask you a question. Now, what would you do if you were in a car on the main runway of Shannon Airport with guys like Paul and Rusty? Open the car doors for takeoff. Put your seatbelts in upright position. Fasten your seatbelts. Tray covers up. The French teacher was ahead of us. As she was already in a brace position, head down onto the driver's seat. There's no life belts on this Boeing BMW, said Paul to her. We were flying down the main runway of Shannon Airport, willing the car to take off. Boy, that BMW could fly, even though the wheels never left the ground. Looking to the sky, we see an Air France plane coming into our newly required runway. What a cheek. Beginner's French class and a collision with an Air France plane all in the one day. We kindly pulled onto the grass verge to let the plane land on our runway. It approached, nearly touched down, and then took off again. We thought collectively the pilot was learning how to fly, as there was a training school for larger planes at the airport. Off we go again. This time on a real getaway, looking for a way out urgently. We knew we were in trouble. Alarm bells were ringing everywhere. Car doors now closed. Rocket speed reduced to, look at me, I'm a good boy. Three fire engines raced on the runway with sirens wailing and lights flashing. An army of security personnel hanging off each one of them. Here's the, here's the keystone cops coming, said Paul. It was funny. 
but now quite serious for us. You could cut the tension with a knife. If you ever wonder what I was thinking, God help the French teacher in what she was thinking. <laughs> one fire engine came across the front of the car, another one to the left side, and a third fire engine to the right side. All I could do to get away was reverse. <laughs> but I thought better of that and instead got out of the car. Possibly with my hands in the air. I can't remember it. It all passed like a blur. I rested the sound of the alarm still sounding from the round airport. We were frog-marched to the airport terminal. I was quizzed on how we got onto the runway and who let me on, as the others were too. After our story was verified, the Air France plane was given permission to land. I'm sure there was a cheer from all on board. During the next week, everywhere I went in the airport, I was known as Captain John. <laughs> you see, I got my stripes after all. The following month, I was summoned to a meeting about the Air France plane incident. The plane was made to board its landing at the last second because they thought I was trying to hijack the plane, especially with the Northern Ireland registration plates. <laughs> They wanted me to contribute £600 towards the costs, which I believe equates to £2,200 today. Mr. Bloom, the principal of the Hotel College, came to the meeting with me and refused that I would pay. As I was a student trying to get home, and through no fault of my own, they allowed me on the runway. <laughs> Nothing was paid. Now that was a getaway. Thanks, John. OK, let's go across the globe to Adelaide in South Australia. 10 by 9 Adelaide is run by the wonderful Danny Madsen and Mel Lambert, both with strong links to Belfast. We have two stories back-to-back, and the storytellers are, believe it or not, both called Jen. That same night, two other storytellers were called Ben. A definite lack of imagination among the parents of Australia. So here are the two Jens with their pet's tales. As I pulled up at the Northern Territory RSPCA... I wanted loyalty, and I wanted a puppy. Nobody wants somebody else's problem. Mature dogs who are surrendered to the RSPCA are surrendered for a reason, I said to my shit boyfriend as we escorted to the dog section. I can only remember seeing one dog now, and it wasn't a puppy. It was a staffy with the biggest head I've ever seen and the sharpest teeth too. And he was squeaking at me. He was full grown with a brown nose, coppery coat like an old two cent coin with eyes to match. He had a way of sitting up as straight as he could, but still moving forward. (laughs) And perhaps it was the color of his coat that reminded me of an Irish red setter that was long dead from my childhood, but as I looked into his little eyes, he just seemed to be saying, pick me, pick me, please pick me. Let's pick this one, I said to the shit boyfriend. You said you wanted a puppy. We should at least look at them first, said shit. (laughs) (laughs) 
I had a super quick look at the milky, wriggling puppy pens. Nah, they're all ugly, I said uncharitably, only thinking of the big red stuffy. He looked like he knew he needed rescuing. So we picked the red staff. Yes, said one of the volunteers, calling to another person in an RSPCA shirt. Someone's finally taken Zeus. The colleague might have said something like awesome and went on with their work. So his name was Zeus and I never changed it. He was everything I wanted. Loyal to a fault, he followed me everywhere around the house. Sat outside the bathroom and toilet door while I was in there, so you always knew where I was. <laughs> and a few months later, the shit boyfriend came home with a black staffy pup, saying he wanted a dog that was his. She was like a soft, smooth, tar baby. She had shiny black eyes to match her coat, and we named her Sky. Zeus tolerated her snuggling, but I swear he would roll his eyes when she came near. Now, Zeus was a tough-looking dog, I have to say it, and the shit boyfriend was just the kind of jerk who thought that the tough-looking dog would make him look tough. So he kept trying to be Zeus's friend, but Zeus wasn't having a bar of it, and neither was Skye. This turned out to be a bit of an important indicator. But as I saw the relationship escalating into abuse, uh, although my life in itself was a dog's breakfast at the time, uh, I was at least present enough to see where things were going and stop it before anything got dangerous. So in the little peach-coloured house in Fairway Waters, it was just me and my staffies. I had a hole in my heart for various reasons and they were the perfect shape to fill it with sunshine, warm doggy bodies jammed either side of me on the couch and the most gentle love. I love them both with all of my heart, but it was Zeus who anchored me to the earth, which was fairly apt because he often smelled like earth. He was a bit of a digger. And after 10 years or more, I left each of them at different times and places, laying on the warm, soft earth. I covered them over with sandy loam and planted a bush for them when I was finished. A yellow carpet rose for Zeus and a pink lavender bush for Skye when it was her turn. But I felt like I held on to Zeus for a long time. For years after he died, I could start crying as soon as I remembered that he was not gone, but dead. And like a child, I just wished that he wasn't. It's hard to describe how close our bond felt, especially to someone who doesn't love dogs. Weeks after we buried him, I uh, was at work one day and felt a warm, bristly canine body lean up against my legs. I actually looked under the table and of course there was nothing there. Thanks, Susie, I said to myself. I was sure it was him and this happened a few more times over the next few years. But a couple of years ago, I had a dream about him. And I'm just going to share it here because <laughs> my dreams normally are a psychoanalyst's 
fantasy. <laughs> they are thick with symbolism. I'm seeing people with flames in their hands, hold, handing keys and bells to me. It's, it's quite unrealistic. So when, when a dream seems real, um, it stays with me. <clears throat> so for this dream, I feel it was the night that he really finally moved on. But not without saying goodbye first. The sky, as always, was grey. I stood outside my house. The air smelled of rain, dewfall, or the fragrant kiss of the first drops of rain on hot concrete. And I could smell the earth. The road, straight as a rod, was black, but smoother than normal, newly tarred. The grass was papery and dry as I walked onto the driveway. There was no sound. Each end of the street was obscured by thick grey fog. The air felt charged, like something was holding its breath, waiting in anticipation. There was a sense that somewhere an unseen door was opening. The concrete was neither warm nor cool, but hard and reassuring under my feet. And then I heard it, tick, 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 first faintly, and then the sound of claws on concrete got stronger. And then I saw him, old, stout but becoming thin like he was before he died, padding towards me. Zeus, I cried out, my voice overly loud in the clouded, shrouded silence. My wish my impossible, irrational, unnatural even, that he could come back had come true. A warm, welcome wave of euphoric disbelief flashed up from my gut to my chest, into my throat, onto my face. Tears spilled out onto my cheeks, warm on my hands. You're back! I patted him eagerly and he wagged his tail leaning against my legs like he always did. I buried my nose in his coat. He smelled the same. Musty, pungent at times, but always of sunshine. The yellow rays of late summer sun still warm on his back. Breathless, I gasped. You're back. You've come back. And standing on that dream street, it all felt so real. But I knew it wasn't. I knew he was curled up under the yellow carpet rose, just a few steps away, probably bone white by now. He started to move away from me. He stopped shining those copper eyes on me with love in them, goodbye in them. Oh, I say. I felt the hurt and the grief and it was fresh. You're not staying. My heart sank and the newly knit seams ripped. Tick, 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 tick. I watched, useless, as my hand slid off his back and he walked towards the thickening fog on the street's western side. I watched him amble off, amble on, down the street, gone. 
and I woke up, my eyes wet with tears, still sobbing softly. And in the coming days, I grieved for him all over again. So it's hard to say goodbye. And sometimes when I think of him, I still cry. But I'm thankful every day for the four-legged mate who rescued me from a time in my life when I was well and truly lost into a new healthy phase of life and love. I am so thankful for the pet who taught me that soulmates aren't always human, but they do exist. The school holidays were here and we were going away. We loved staying at Nana and Papa's farm. Dad had asked us the week before who would be a local kid who could take care of our pets while we were away. Ben recommended his mate Ronnie. Ronnie had been over a few times and he was fascinated with our animals. In fact, it was the only thing he did he and Ben did when he was here. Play with, talk to and pat the animals. He didn't have any pets himself. We had a veritable menagerie of pets. The most of all the local kids. Kittens that had been dumped over the back fence and a stray dog that had wandered through the open back gate. The rest were from the pet shop. Among them was a brown rabbit, who my sister had called Pinky, a muddle of forever breeding guinea pigs and birds. The quail were busy scurrying around in their own triangular cage on the ground. Peace doves, canaries and zebra finches perched comfortably in the aviary. Oh, and fish. We bought this one fish at the Royal Show one year and Mum suggested each of us give it a name. As a result, the poor fish was christened Murgatroyd Ruffles Lee. <laughs> because Ronnie couldn't tear himself away from our pets, Ben thought he'd be the best pick. He'll take real good care of them, Dad, Ben felt sure. Ronnie was short, skinny and had brown hair. His fringe looked like someone had put a small bowl over his head and snipped straight across at the bowl's edge. He had bifocal rectangular glasses with silver frames and his eyes fogged up when he breathed out. They frequently slid down his nose. He readjusted them nervously with his index finger. On the morning of our trip, Ronnie knocked on the front door. Dad answered it. Hello, Ronnie. He 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 hello, Mr. Pierce. Ronnie had a stutter. Ready to look after the animals? Dad asked cheerfully. Ronnie looked through the foggy glasses. You 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 bet, Mr. Pierce. And 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 you can count on me, Mr. Pierce to look, look, look after the animals properly. Don, don, don't you worry, Ronnie managed to say. 
Dad quizzed Ronnie as he usually did, being interested in people and all. How are you going at school? And are you playing any sports? Then he took him round the side to the backyard and showed him the pets one by one and what Ronnie would need to do to look after them. Ronnie nodded enthusiastically and made some stuttering responses to Dad's instructions to show he understood. When we were ready, we piled our bags into the light ace and left for the farm. Ronnie stood smiling and waving outside the back shed, beaming about his new and very important responsibility. As I lay in my bed at the farm early the next morning, I listened to the magpies chortling and the cows mooing just a paddock away. I thought about our pets. I thought about two of the guinea pigs designated Shane and Steve after the cricketers Shane Warren and Steve War. I thought about the kitten called Kitten who are sometimes took for walks. And I thought about the canary named Michelle. I hoped they were all right. While I was listening to the farm sounds, I heard Papa calling out, Birdie, 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 as he did every morning when he put grain out for his wild pets to fly down and eat. So I jumped up and went outside. Sitting on top of a garden wall was Charlie, the feral farm cat. He was rough as guts and you couldn't go near him to pat him. You'd only be hissed at and scratched. When we arrived home from our holiday, we pulled into the shed drive next to the long corrugated iron fence. The fence stretched from just past the front door to the back shed. It had Coatsy graffiti graffitied on it. Coatsy appeared on the fence about five years into our stay there at Woody Gardens. We'd never met Coatsy or its writer. It was graffitied on in dark blue, but now it was painted over with a pale paint which tried to be like the corrugated iron and failed. It was more of a pale white and it still read Coatsy. As soon as the van stopped, us kids ran into the backyard, excited to see our pets. Ronnie was already there, waiting for us. He was neatly attired with his hands clasped bravely together in front of him. His arms were shaking. They, they, they gone, Ben, Ronnie repeated. They gone. The animals, they's gone. Suddenly, I was afraid. Dad came into the yard. Ronnie looked anxiously up at Dad. They's are all gone, Mr Pierce. Someone's taken them. We looked around the yard. All the pet cages were open. The rabbit cage under the broad lemon tree and the guinea pig cage next to it. Ripe lemons had dropped to the ground near the cages. Ruth sat on the grass next to the rabbit cage and started to cry, Pinky. Dad scratched his head and said, how peculiar. Well, there's nothing much we can do at the moment. 
Let's sleep on it, he said matter-of-factly. He walked back through the gate and began unpacking the van. Ben and I stood with Ronnie. But how could it happen, Ronnie? we asked. Ronnie shrugged his shoulders and said, they, they, they's not here when I's come over. Two mornings later, we heard from inside someone calling from the porch. Mr. Pierce, Mr. Pierce. It was Ronnie. Those ear, Mr. Pierce, I's found them for you. I's found them. Come and see. Those outside your back fence. Ronnie led Dad out to the street side of the Coatsy fence. We followed. There, all along the small patchy grass strip next to the pavement with a quail pecking on the, at the ground, Pinky the rabbit and enough guinea pigs to give away to all the kids in the street were eating the grass. We started gathering up our pets. See, said Ronnie, I's found them for you. They was just here this morning when I walked by. Ronnie's nervous voice rang out. Hmm, said Dad. It's very strange, Ronnie. And with a slight smile at the edges of his mouth, he said, yes, it's very strange indeed. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to the two Jens, and thanks also to Ben Roberts, who sent us the recordings. OK, back home now, and here's another getaway story told by Gaynor Kane. Picture this. You're 18, standing on the platform of Dublin's Connolly Street Station as the last train to Belfast rattles out and along the tracks. You're bent over, breathless, from running the last bit of the journey to the station. You hold a one-way ticket in your sweaty hand. You've nowhere to spend the night and about five punts in your purse, your friend starts to cry. A few weeks earlier, my school friend Tracy and I had spent a couple of days in Dublin. We'd stayed in the luxury of the Burlington Hotel in Ballsbridge. It had all the trimmings that you get in that sort of establishment. Crisp white Egyptian cotton sheets, velvet brocade curtains, the full Irish breakfast with an endless teapot. On the Friday night, we'd went to pubs and discos and had ended up meeting a couple of fellas. Mine was called Robbie. He was older, probably about 10 years older, and he was a bit of a rough dub with a cheeky smile and bright eyes full of devilment. We met up with him again on the Saturday and then returned home on the Sunday. But we missed them. It was the days before mobile phones and bake book, so we decided to take a day trip to see them again and make sure that numbers and addresses were exchanged. We arrived late morning and made our way directly to the pub that Tracy's wee fellow worked in. It was awful. He had the day off and we had no way of knowing where to find him. So we walked further out of the city centre to the bar that we knew they frequented. No sign, but we... We sat and had a bit of lunch and a few drinks. The girl behind the bar had been introduced to us by Robbie the weekend we met, and I asked her where we might find him. She said he might be in later, so we sat talking and drinking and forgot the time. When we realised how late it was, we downed our glasses of Guinness and Blackcurrant 
and raced out, shouting across the room for her to tell the boys the next time she saw them that we'd called down to see them. So that's us, back to the beginning of the story, and me and Tracy standing out of puff and overwhelmed as her only way home trundled out of the station. After taking a few minutes to compose ourselves, we decided to try each bar again in the hope that we'd meet somebody we knew and they would offer a place for the night. But we didn't come across the guys and the girl behind the bar in the second place didn't offer. She did let us use the phone though, so we both phoned our mummies and told them we decided to stay in Dublin for the night. Next we walked and walked and walked trying to come up with an idea. At St Stephen's Green, we sat down on the curb, exhausted and facing the fear and likelihood of spending a night on the streets. We put our heads in our hands and we sobbed. A car pulled up alongside us. I was terrified that somebody had mistaken us for a pair of prostitutes. <laughs> then, through blurry eyes, I saw the markings of a police car. Two male guards got out and asked if we were all right. We shook our heads and began to cry again. They offered soothing statements and shooed us until the two of us between us were able to explain the predicament we'd found ourselves in. They asked if they could help us find somewhere to stay and we spent the next hour in the back of a police car being driven around from hostel to convent and other possible hostelries in between. <laughs> But we saw the shaking heads each time the guards explained. Their shift was due to finish soon, so they brought us back to Harcourt Terrace Garda Station and we stayed the night in the medical room on hard plastic chairs. <laughs> About midnight, a wee guard, who couldn't have been long out of probation, came to the doorway. Are you the wee girls from Belfast, he asked. We nodded. He was stereotypically Irish-looking, freckles, blue eyes and ginger hair. He asked lots of questions about where we worked, what Belfast was like, its nightlife, and where we normally went at the weekends. Then said, I'll be finishing in a couple of hours. Will you come out dancing? <laughs> no, said we, we're too upset to go out. We just want to go home. Someone walked past and he said he better go and do a bit of work. An hour later, he was back. Right, girls, won't you go dancing? And there he was, shimmying his shoulders and doing a wee two-step. <laughs> no, sure, we've no money. And we laughed at his dancing. Oh, come on, girls, you will, won't you? We'll go out dancing. I'll pay. I'll get you drinks and everything. Thanks, but we're exhausted. We'd ruin your night, we said, letting him down gently. Fifty minutes later, he bounced into the medical room again. He changed out of his blue uniform into jeans and a t-shirt. Right, final offer, girls. Will you come dancing? We laughed at his persistence and said we just wanted to go home to Belfast. And we said if he was ever in Belfast, that he should look us up and we would show him the sights. The rest of the night dragged. We had to get up and walk about to keep our bums from going numb on hard plastic showers. We didn't have the energy for much conversation, so we looked at every inch of the walls and its flaking paint, read the posters about safety and first aid, took an inventory of the scant furniture and counted all the carpet tiles. 
At seven o'clock, we thanked the duty sergeant and made our way back to Connolly Street. At the ticket office, we presented our day returns and told the clerk what had happened. It was a fiver to upgrade to a next day return. Luckily, we had just enough and we're delighted to get into a comfy seat and doze on the journey back home. Crossing the Albert Bridge, we rubbed sleep from our eyes. Belfast had never looked so good. Now, I have a wee bit of a postscript. I wrote that story for the um, workshops that were funded by Belfast City Council. And those taking part, um, I had told them that my mummy still didn't know about the night I spent in the Garda station in Dublin. And they said it was really important and that I should put it in the story. And then I went to visit her about a week and a half ago and I let her listen um, to the story I read at uh, the Side Arts Festival. And uh, I says, Mummy, I'm taking part in 10 by 9 again and I don't know what story to do, whether I do my wedding story or the Dublin story. What's your Dublin story, she said. Thanks so much, Gaynor. But you should know, you cannot keep a secret from the Irish mommy. And that's it from the podcast for now. Be sure to check out our website, 10by9.com. And if you fancy a 10by9 at your festival or your conference or social event, see what we have to offer and get in touch. And we're also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. A big thank you to all the wonderful people both in Belfast Black Box and in the Jade in Adelaide. Thanks to you for listening, but of course the biggest thank you goes to John, the two Jens and to Gaynor. If you enjoy the podcast, spread the word. And if you can give us a rating or even a review at Apple Podcasts, we'd be very grateful. It helps get us noticed. Our theme tune comes from the Free Music Archive and is by Fantastic Swimmers, while our incidental music is by Brent Bourgeois, and we got that at Facebook Signs. For now, bye-bye.